Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. In this session, we're going to address the biblical approach to dealing with our emotions. We're going to start first with the most difficult emotion that all of us have to face, and that's the emotion of hatred, of bitterness. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look in this session at what Jesus has to say, first of all, about what it takes to deal with these emotions that we've been studying. In Matthew chapter 18, we have a familiar story of the disciples as they were trying to relate one to another. And you'll see as we read through the story some of the emotions that are beginning to surface. And let's just take a look, starting in verse 1. He says, At the same time came the disciples to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now this kind of a question is filled with emotion, really. This kind of a question is a question that is directly related to the needs that all of us have, the need to be secure and to be significant, and to the fact that this need to be secure and significant is not being met. And we are, in in fact, looking to have those needs met when we ask such a question as these disciples asked Jesus. Which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is a question of competition. It's a question of who is better. And it's a question that necessitates someone wins and someone loses. And that is an occasion for a lot of emotion. These disciples were nervous. They were afraid. They wanted to know which one of them was going to experience being the greatest in the kingdom. And they actually came to Jesus, having argued for some time, and asked him this question. Jesus dealt with them, first of all, with an object lesson. In verse 2 he says, And he called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receives me. Now before we go any further in this story, let's Let's get an understanding of what Jesus was really talking about with this little child. What did he do? Imagine, if you will, Jesus talking to a group of of men and his disciples standing around him and him being seated in the middle of them. That was a typical teaching style of the day, was that the teacher sat and the students stood around about him. I don't know how it is that you folks have manipulated me to stand and while you're sitting, but in Jesus' day, the students stood while the rabbi sat and taught. And the teacher, looking through the legs of those disciples and around them, spotted a little child playing around, as is frequently the case in such settings. And he made eye contact with that little child. And he brought that little child in to his presence with eye contact. I can just see Jesus looking and getting the eye contact, arresting that little child from his play, and then loving that little child through his eyes and bringing that child in to sit on his lap. Now just visualize the picture in your mind of this little child weaving his way through those big men who are asking which one of us is the greatest. And this little child weaving his way through came and Jesus stretched out his arms and received that child in, set him on his lap, held him tight, and loved him. And then he spoke to these words, to his disciples. He says, you're going to have to be like this little child. You're going to have to let me love you. You're going to have to let me meet your needs. You're going to have to let me tenderly hold you on my lap and be satisfied with what I can give you. 
to be the greatest. Whoever will allow me to meet their needs in that fashion will be the greatest in the kingdom. But then he moves immediately to relationships. I want you to notice this with me. He said, whoso receives, verse 5, whoso receives one such little one in my name receives me. Jesus identified himself with this little child who believed on him, who trusted him enough to crawl up into his lap and to be loved by him, be ministered to by him. Jesus identified himself fully, and he tells us that whoever receives such a one in my name, that means in union with me. Anytime you see the word name appear in the Bible, it all identifies who we are by our name. Whenever the and scripture needs to be carefully attended to, particularly in reference you see to the Jesus, word name in, in the Jesus name, we need to really pay attention to God in to any what's fashion, being said because it's, it's, name talking it's talking about identity. a very important it's concept talking of identity. Who we are. Here, Jesus said, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. What he's saying is, I am so one with this little child. I am in this little child, and this little child is in me. He is receiving me. When you receive him in my name, you're receiving not just the little child, you're receiving me as well. And he cast a whole new light on our relationships. A completely different light is cast on our relationships when we began to see one another as Jesus' little child in Jesus' name. You see, when we relate to each other frequently, we get the idea that we can get away with hurting someone carrying a grudge, getting mad and seeking revenge or something of that nature. But what we need to keep in mind is that Jesus so identifies himself with us that we might be found not to be resenting or snubbing or carrying a grudge against a particular individual as much as we are the Jesus who lives in that individual, who is in union with that individual. So Jesus is trying to calm his disciples down because undoubtedly they were arguing I can just hear him now. I can hear Peter saying, well, I'm the greatest. There's no doubt in the world that I am the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus just said, when we were up at Caesarea Philippi on that vacation, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, Peter. And whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed. So you, I've got to be the greatest. Can't you just hear Peter saying that? And can't you hear the other boys chiming in like James and John saying, now wait a minute, Peter. Didn't Jesus, at that same place, the Caesarea Philippi, immediately after he told you all of that, didn't he turn to you with fire coming from his eyes and say, Get thee behind me, Satan? If you go look it up in Matthew 16, you'll find that that very thing happened. And so they had ammunition, James and John had plenty of ammunition, to actually prove that Peter was not the greatest in the kingdom, but they suspected, of course, that they, one of them might be the greatest in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, Peter, or James and John, rather, actually talked their mom into going and asking Jesus if they could be second in command in the kingdom. They manipulated mom to do the dirty work for them, thinking that Jesus would have compassion upon a mother, you understand. So these guys are fighting with each other, and in the process, relationships are being torn apart, being destroyed. Now, it can be argued that relationships hadn't really been built yet because these folks were just like you and I. If Jesus were to walk through our town or our city today and he would actually pick out 12 men from different locations, different walks of life, different occupations, and tell them, come follow me, and those 12 men who never knew each other before, some of which did, like the brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, and so on, knew each other, and Peter and Andrew, they were brothers, uh, but most of them didn't know each other. And you could see immediately little cliques developing, couldn't you? Couldn't you see in their relationships how Peter and John, would, or, or James and John rather, would hang out? And of course, they'd include Peter because he was a fisherman like them. And how old Levi, the publican, now the tax collector Levi, he wouldn't be hanging out with any of them because they all hated the tax collectors. He would be kind of a loner, as with some of the others. There would be naturally very little relationship. But they'd been following Jesus at this time for some time. Actually, they'd been following him for nearly two years, and so they would be well acquainted with each other now, well enough acquainted to fight. That's really what it takes for us to fight, isn't it? We have to get to know each other. We hardly ever fight with perfect strangers, with the exception on the freeway and places like that. <laughs> we hardly ever fight with 
perfect strangers. We're generally nice to them, putting our best foot forward and so on. Really, the people we fight with the most are the people we love and live with. So these folks began to fight with each other, just like we do. And Jesus, addressing that very issue, first of all, tells them that they're going to have to humble themselves and be like this little child. And then he gives a very stern warning. And here the language gets very, very intense. And I want you to follow along with me, kind of put your spiritual seatbelts on here, because the language is going to be very intense. Because in verse 6 he says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now this is a harsh statement, isn't it? This is a terrible statement. Jesus is saying this, that whoever offends one of these little ones that believe on me, one of these who have been received by me, who have been brought in by me, that I've identified myself with, it would actually be better for them if a millstone, you all realize what a millstone is, it's a big old rock they use to grind up grain with and so on, make flour, heavy thing, I don't know what it weighs, close to a ton. But imagine tying a rope around a millstone, tying the other end of that rope around your neck, and then go out in the ocean and on a boat and throw that millstone overboard. What's going to happen to you? Very quickly, almost instantaneously, if the if the jerking of the rope doesn't break your neck and kill you, you're certainly going to drown within a matter of minutes. What Jesus is saying is this. It's better for you to die quickly than to run around offending people. Now, we need to understand, again, from our emotions, what causes us to offend folks. In our emotional categories that we've discussed, we've talked about the category of love versus hate. It is that hate, that sinful emotion of hatred, of bitterness, that produces strife, that ultimately comes from jealousy and envy. It's that emotion deep within that causes our offense in word or in deed to other people. And Jesus is saying it's better for you to die quickly than it is to live with a death-producing emotion of hatred bound up inside your soul. Now, I know that many people get the idea, because of what he goes on to say, that Jesus is here warning that if you offend somebody, he's going to tie a millstone around your neck and throw you in the sea. But, you see, that's not what he's saying here at all. Look what else he says in verse 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses. He says this is where a lot of our problems come from. A lot of our difficulties come from interpersonal strife. As a matter of fact, most of our problems come from strife, that we have with other people in our relationships. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. You see, Jesus is a realist. He recognizes that not only are we going to offend others, but offenses have to come. And the reason that's the case is because we're human beings. We're people. We're frail in regards to our relationships with other people. And we naturally offend other people as a matter of course in our life. And he knows that we're going to have to deal with this business of offending and being offended. So he's a realist about it, but he goes on to say in verse 7, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now here Jesus is specifically talking about the one who is so filled with hatred and bitterness in his soul, the one who is so uh, full of that negative, not negative, but sinful emotion of hatred that he runs around offending other people. And again, the idea here is not that we uh, can wait for Jesus is saying woe because he's going to somehow punish that. Let's just clear that up right now. You, you understand that people offend people all the time and get away with it? You all understand that? Do you realize how many people go about offending people every day and nothing happens to them? Nothing bad actually happens to those people. They seem to get away with it. So Jesus isn't, isn't warning us here that if you offend people, God's going to get you. As a matter of fact, it can very often look just the opposite. It can look like the people who get along in this world are the ones running around offending people all the time. But what is Jesus really getting at then? He is getting at the fact that the person who is doing the offending, having that bitterness and hatred 
in their soul is actually the one we need to feel sorry for. If I were to, just out of the clear blue, offend one of you, or one of you who are watching this video, if I were to just offend you, to speak badly about you in some way or another, for no reason, no apparent reason, everybody here would think that we ought to feel sorry for the one who's been offended. We would naturally think, they didn't do anything wrong. What's the matter with you? Why are you speaking badly about them? Or we would naturally take up their offense, we call it, and we would naturally want to rush to their aid and so on because they've been unjustly treated. But Jesus is calling us to something different here. He's calling us to not look at people who do the offending with a judgmental attitude and say what ought to be done to them, but rather to look at them with the eye of compassion to see the turmoil in their soul. Actually, he calls us to feel sorry for the people who are running around offending others because he says it would better for them that they die quickly than they carry around this death in them, in their soul. Now, tighten up your spiritual seatbelt because it's going to get worse. The language is going to intensify here. That's bad enough, isn't it? I mean, you stop and think about it. You want me to feel sorry for this guy who's running around offending everybody? Oh, that's bad enough. But read on with me. In verse 8, he says, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee. Now notice what's offending. who's offending who here. It's your own hand or your own foot that's hurting you. Okay? It's, in other words, it's your own actions. It's your own circumstances and your own actions that's hurting you. Now, by this, he makes a very subtle change in the context here, but a very important one, because now what he's calling on us to do is to challenge in our thinking, in our minds, what is in us that is bringing out offense towards others. A roundabout way of saying that is he's calling on us to actually take a long, hard look inside to see what sinful emotions are embedded in our souls that lead us to say and do things that offend and hurt other people. Now, it's not an easy process. As a matter of fact, it's frequently a very painful process. It doesn't alleviate your symptoms, your feelings, or your emotions as a matter of fact, it usually, to begin with, enhances the feelings that you have. To take that long look inside. You see, what he's calling on us to do in verse 8, because of this, he says, Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. He is talking here about self-inflicted pain. Now, let me clarify, because every year you read about somebody actually cutting their hand off or cutting their foot off because they've taken this literally. You see, Jesus is not talking about cutting your foot off literally or cutting your hand off. He's talking about an emotional courage that we have to find that will enable us to deal with, even though it's painful to us at the time, to deal with that junk that's down inside of us that causes us to offend others. So he's calling on us to do what he says in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, to actually take the beam out of our eye before we go try to take the speck out of our brother's eye. He's actually calling on us to take our own inventory, to look at ourselves honestly before we try to deal with others in relationship to other people. And specifically, what he's talking about here is the hatred that wells up within us. Now, it's so easy for us to store this hatred. You see, any time you're disappointed, Anytime someone lets you down, anytime you lose control, anytime that circumstances aren't what you want them to be, any external circumstance that you lose control over will produce naturally in you a response in the flesh of hatred. Now, I know we like to say, I'm just angry. I'm not really hating that person, I'm just angry. I've been just angry with them for 23 years. But I'm just angry. I'm not really hating. But you see, 
That's not the case. Actually, we need to get real. We need to get honest about the fact that anytime anybody hurts us, the next morning we're going to hate them. And that hatred is going to fester on our soul like an abscess deep inside. And it's going to have to be dealt with. And like an abscess deep inside on our soul, we're going to have to have some surgery to deal with that. And that surgery is going to be painful initially. And this is what Jesus is getting around to when he says, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut it off. If your eye offend you, poke it out. I mean, this is a very graphic language here, folks. This video ought to be R-rated for you folks who are watching this because of the graphic language that Jesus is using here. Poke out your own eye, cut off your own foot, cut off your own hand. That's self-inflicted pain that nobody in their right mind would really want to do. But Jesus is saying, it's better that you do that and enter into life, even if you're crippled, than it is to go on in your dysfunction and become useless and cast into the garbage heap. You see, most people who fail to deal with their emotions wind up in the garbage heap. Let me give you an illustration now from a fellow one of the, was in one of the first alpha classes I ever taught at the faith farm. His name is Earl. Brother Earl is a classic case in point here because when he was a little boy, his daddy left him just as he was left his family just when he was an infant, and his mama had to raise him by herself, and she had other children, and she had to go out and work, and so she left the kids with grandma most of the time. Now, grandma was a strict disciplinarian, especially for little boys, and every time that Earl would misbehave, she had a special, unique way of dealing with his behavior to straighten Earl out she would put him in a gunny sack, tie it closed, and beat him with a stick. She was very abusive. Earl grew up hating Grandma and hating Mom for leaving him with Grandma, hating his dad for leaving the family, and hating God who could have done something about it but didn't that hatred began to fester on Earl's soul. Earl did grow up. He became a man. And he got married. And he had children. But slowly that festering hatred in Earl's soul took over his life, controlled his life, to such an extent that he would try to numb that pain of that hatred stuffed down inside with alcohol to begin with, and then drugs. And even the alcohol and drugs wouldn't use, so he would abuse his wife, taking out that hatred against women who had abused him on his wife, who was completely innocent. And he would abuse his children until finally he was in the garbage heap, literally, and checked into the program. When Earl came into the Alpha class and we began to deal with these emotions, we began, he began to understand. The Holy Spirit began to work with him and show him that his problem was not just what happened to him when he was a child. As a matter of fact, as we went through an emotional healing process and prayer one day, he began to realize that he had a responsibility in this. That his hatred for his grandmother who abused him was every bit as much sin and had produced as much dysfunction in his life as the abuse of his grandmother in the first place. And he realized that two wrongs don't make a right. The abuse was wrong in the first place, no doubt. But the reaction of hatred that he carried with him throughout his life also produced wrong in him. This is how, by the way, the sins of the fathers are visited on seven generations. It's a family cycle of dysfunction that continues over and over again. Earl decided he would make a break. But it was a very painful process. One afternoon in group, Earl said, I'm ready to deal with it. And he began to realize what it means to cut off your own hand, to poke out your own eye, to cut off your own foot. As he recounted for the group the painful experiences of his childhood, and he began to share with the group the abuse, the rage and the hatred seething in his soul began to emerge. And then Earl did the final cut. 
he recognized that his hatred that he had coddled all his life was as much sin as what his grandmother did to him. And he cut off his arm. He cut off that leg. He poked out that eye. And he received forgiveness from God for his hating his grandmother. And when he received that forgiveness and the cleansing that came in the purging of his soul, he was then able to actually forgive his grandmother. You see, you can't give what you don't have. You can't forgive someone if you've not received forgiveness. If you've never dealt with the issues of your own hatred, you can justify yourself. Many people do this. They, they justify themselves day and night as to why it is they're carrying this grudge, why it is that they're hating this abusive situation and this abusive person who had no right to treat him that way never realizing that what God calls us to is to be like Christ. If there was anybody that ever had a right to be completely justified in hating, it was Jesus, who suffered all manner of abuse. If you read the story of the crucifixion, you'll see how he was abused emotionally. He was falsely charged lied about, slandered, accused. He was arrested falsely. The trial that they gave him was a hoax. It even violated their own Jewish law. He was turned over to the Roman soldiers to be beaten, to be prepared for an execution. Those Roman soldiers stripped him of his garments, now, it's not said in the scripture, but custom has it that the reason soldiers stripped the victim was to sexually abuse them. In all probability, Jesus was sexually abused. As they pulled out his beard, spat in his face, humiliated him, and put a purple robe on him and mocked him, finally putting a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus suffered abuse. So if anybody had a reason to hate with righteous hatred, if we could say there is such a thing, it was Jesus. And yet his example that is given to us as they stretched him out on the cross and began to drive the spikes through his wrists and his hands, as they nailed him to the cross, it was necessary for Jesus to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, anything less than that is dysfunctional. Anything less than saying, Father, forgive them, is to harbor hatred and a grudge that will consume us. But again, we can't give what we don't have. If we've not received forgiveness, we can't give it. Jesus could forgive, though he had nothing to be forgiven of, because he was God. Because he actually had the right to hold them responsible, but in his grace and in his love and out of his character and representing the Father who sent him for this very purpose, he freely forgave. Now, Jesus had to. There was a practical reason why he had to forgive those men because you remember Jesus was protected by angelic beings while he was here on this earth. God had given them charge over his body that if anything bad should happen to it, that they would go to war for him. And there was at least a legion of, of demon, or demons, a legion of angels fighting a legion of demons involved in the spiritual war that occurred at Calvary. Jesus had to pray forgiveness for the men who were going to crucify them so that the angels would not melt the flesh off their bones when they began to pierce his skin. He prayed for forgiveness. Now, anything less than that on our part will lead to dysfunction, very serious dysfunction. 
to harbor hatred in his heart destroyed Earl's life. It destroyed his marriage. It destroyed his relationship with his children. And even though Earl could kind of medicate it a little bit by rationalizing and saying, well, you know, after all, I have a reason to hate because of the way I've been treated. It was destroying his life. It was not until Earl realized that he had no excuse to hate, that he could receive forgiveness from God for his hate and actually replace that hatred with divine love, even for those who despitefully used him and abused him. When he understood that and he applied it, Earl received the healing that he desperately needed. The last I heard about Earl is he went home to be with his family and was doing quite well in restored relationship. I just use him as an example to teach us what we need to do with regards to Jesus' instruction here about cutting off our own hand, cutting out off our own foot, and poking out our eye. Now, Jesus gives us one final warning here that I want us to, to note. He says in verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. It never does us any good to hate another person. It only brings death into our lives. But notice Jesus went on down in verse 15 to explain our relationship to others now. This is what we typically think of when we think of offenses. We think of what he says in verse 15 when he says, Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. I've heard this advice given out many times, and I want to caution you about this advice. That we should, this is the advice, that we should go to those people we're mad at and Get it right with them. Let me caution you. Be very careful about going to people you're mad at. Because nine times out of ten, we go to people we're mad at to get them to do something to make us feel better. And when you do that, it never works. You walk away worse. The situation actually gets inflamed. When, in short, what we're trying to do is we're trying to practice verse 15 that we just read before we live the first 14 verses of the chapter. You see, this is the necessary step. We have to deal with our own issues inside first. We need to deal with that hatred and that bitterness inside of us, receiving the forgiveness of God for not being like Jesus before we're in a position to go to another. Now, nine times out of ten, when you ask God to forgive you for hating that person that offended you, by the time you work through that, you're not going to have to go to that person that offended you because you're able to forgive them and love them. And love covers a multitude of sins. But if God so directs you, after you've forgiven that person that offends you, and after you've been forgiven for the hatred in you, to go and talk to them, then you'll be going to talk to that person, not for your sake, not to make you feel better, not to improve the quality of your life, but rather for their sake. You'll be going to talk to them. You'll be going under the leadership and power of the Holy Spirit to reconcile them for their sake, not to make you feel better, but to make them feel better. You see, Jesus is going on here now to talk about ministry. Once we've dealt with our own emotions of hatred and bitterness, resentment, grudges, and so on, then we can concern ourselves with the welfare of other people. And these the verses that follow describe that. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go on in this context, but I'm going to switch emotional categories on you now. I'm going to move from the love-hate continuum to the joy self-pity continuum. And I would like for you to turn a few chap chapters over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We have the story of Jesus on the night before he was crucified agonizing in the garden. And there's a very beautiful picture here of how we are to deal with our own pain that we're going to suffer. 
he gives us not only a model, but there's something else I want you to see. He gives us a spiritual provision for dealing with our hurts and dealing with our pain, um, not just our hatred, but now our pain that we feel. Beginning in verse 36 of this chapter, we have the story of Jesus entering into the garden, and he gives testimony to his disciples. Let's just read it so we get the context. Then comes Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now the way that King James translates this in verse 37, it's a little understated. Actually, let me give you a more literal translation. When Jesus walked into that garden, he didn't just begin to be sorrowful and very heavy. He literally submitted himself to a shockwave of grief and astonishment because it was at that moment that he was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that he would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows. You see, the next day on the cross, he was going to pay for our sins. But that evening before the cross, he bore the consequences of our sin or those feelings that we have, our griefs and our sorrows. Now try to get a, a picture in your mind, if you can, of the intensity and the enormity of this. Think about all the pain that you've ever suffered in your life up to this point. And then you add to that all the pain that you might have to suffer yet. And you ball all that up, and then you multiply that times the number of people who ever have or ever will live on this earth. And now you're beginning to get a picture of what Jesus took on himself when he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took on himself a shockwave of grief and astonishment. This is why he had that psychosomatic reaction of dropping to his knees, falling on his face, and bleeding through his sweat glands. But notice how he dealt with this. In verse 38, he said unto them, that's his disciples. Now notice the three he took with him. He took Peter, James, and John. Some people suppose that they always went with Jesus because they were the most spiritual of the lot. I think it was probably opposite. I think they probably went with him because he couldn't trust them alone anywhere else. He probably had to take them everywhere he went because if he left them alone for five minutes, the sons of thunder would get into some kind of ruckus with the authorities. And so... But notice they were the flakiest of the bunch. But notice what Jesus said. He said to them, to Peter, James, and John, he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Two things I want you to see about that. First of all, he said to them that his soul was sorrowful. He was open with them. He didn't try to cover up his emotions. He didn't try to put on a false front. He didn't try to tough it out and act like he, he could handle it, he could take it. He was transparent and honest, even with the flakiest of the disciples. He was honest about where he was feeling for two reasons. Number one, because he always was honest with him in his relationship, but number two, because he didn't want them thinking they were the problem, they were the cause of his problem. You see, when we're not honest about how we're feeling and why we're feeling what we're feeling, other people will naturally assume it's their fault. This is especially true in a family situation. But when we're honest about what we're feeling about, we can clear the air, we can relieve other people. For the second reason he was honest with them, he wanted them to pray. I get tickled about people who come to me and say, would you pray for me? Because they think, because I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, that I have this special line with God, you know, this communication with God that nobody else has. I've got this special thing, and if I pray for them, it'll mean more than if some other person prays for them over here. Listen, no one has a special line with God. As a Christian, you all have direct access to the throne of grace, personally. What I usually like to find for someone to pray for me is the flakiest person I can find. And I usually say, would you pray for me about this? because usually their prayers are more powerful because they're not at all interested in impressing anybody religiously. They just get down to business. Or if you really want to have effective prayer for you, ask a child to pray for you. Ask your own child to pray for you. Now they'll pray with faith, believing that God is going to answer their request. A childlike faith that we sophisticated adults find hard to muster. Jesus asked prayer from these boys. He said, stay here and pray with me. 
And then he went a little further and fell on his face, we're told. And then he himself prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. There's another thing about Jesus coping with his stress here, the pain that he felt. He was not only honest with his disciples, but he was honest with God. As a matter of fact, to deal with our emotions most effectively, that's the first thing we've got to get real about. We've got to get real with God about how we're feeling. We've got to tell him exactly how we're feeling. We've got to tell him and acknowledge our feelings to him in no uncertain terms. You don't have to use polite speech to deity. You can tell him exactly how you're feeling in the language you're comfortable with because he already knows what's in your heart. But he wants you to come to him and be honest and real with him. Jesus said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, even though he knew it wasn't possible. He was telling God, the Father, how he felt. Because immediately he goes on to say, nevertheless, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And this is the most critical thing. Not my will, but yours be done is an act of submission unto the Father. It's an act of faith. Father, I'm going to turn my fate into your hands. Whatever you want in this circumstance, I'll submit to as the best possible thing for me. Not my will, but thine be done. Luke tells us, the angels came and ministered to him at this point. God strengthened him. Not to get out of his suffering, but he strengthened him to go through his suffering. God met him in the middle of his trial. Just like Jesus met the three Hebrew children in the middle of their trial. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? And how the king threw them into this fiery furnace? They met Jesus in the middle of that fiery furnace, which freaked the old king out, Nebuchadnezzar, because he said, I thought we threw three guys in there, and I see four running around, and the fourth one looks like the Son of Man. You see, that's where you're going to meet Jesus, by the way. That's where you're going to find your most intimate, fulfilling time with Jesus is in the middle of the trial, in the fiery furnace, because that's where he waits for you. He's already been there. Now, that's where he met the Father. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I'll accept whatever you choose to do because you are my Father, you love me, you care for me. And the Father strengthened him. Now, Jesus came back and promptly found the boys asleep. They were praying, but they pray like I do, for about five minutes with your eyes closed and it's all over. <laughs> I recommend strongly, if you pray for any length of time, keep your eyes open. It keeps you from running off the road if you're driving. It keeps you from bumping into walls if you're walking. It also keeps you awake. Keep your eyes open. Did you know you can talk to God with your eyes open? You don't have to bow your head and close your eyes to talk to God. Now, sometimes it help, it's helpful to cut out all distractions around you. I realize that. But generally, if you're going to pray and not go to sleep, you're going to have to keep your eyes open. These boys evidently kept their eyes closed because they promptly fell asleep. Jesus came back after praying this prayer and found them asleep, asked them, could you not watch one hour? You see, they didn't even make it an hour in prayer. He was gone at least an hour. They were asleep. He said, truly, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He understood that. Encouraged them a little bit. Now note that. Here Jesus is suffering, excruciating, agonizing pain, not only for himself, but all our pain on himself. And he's going back caring about his disciples. He's going back ministering to his disciples. What a fantastic example. Did you know it's quite possible for you to be in total agony and pain and still care about somebody besides yourself? You don't have to get into self-pity when you hurt. It's no longer necessary that we get into a self-pity trip, throw a pity party, and then really feel sorry for ourselves when no one shows up. We don't have to do that. We can actually supernaturally, like Jesus, actually face our pain, endure that pain, and minister to others while we're in pain. That's possible for you as a Christian because you're one with Christ. Now, Jesus did that, and he went back, and he prayed again the second time, only this prayer was a little different. He said, Father, since it's not possible that this cup pass from me, your will be done. He just affirmed again the will of the Father, and he prayed yet a third time, which brings me to my last point on this. If you're going to pray about a particular problem, and Jesus prayed three times about his, it's in all likelihood you're going to have to keep praying about yours, too. When you face trials and problems, if you're like me, you want an instant fix. You know what I mean? You want, you want to pray one time and have God fix it. 
And if you pray two or three times and he still doesn't fix it, then you start getting mad at God. You say, God, you're late. Where are you? You need to fix this thing now. You see, Jesus prayed three times consistently. But it was not his will that he was praying for. It was the Father's will, which indirectly points out what the purpose of prayer is. The purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind. The purpose of prayer is to change our mind to come, come into conformity with his. And that he does as he speaks to us in our prayer. Now there's one other category of emotions we need to mention quickly in this session, and that is anxiety. We need to talk about a little formula for worry in Philippians chapter 4. What I'm doing here is just giving you some insight into how it is that the scriptures address our particular emotions and how we are to live with those emotions. And in this formula for prayer, Philippians chapter 4, or formula for worry rather, Paul gives us some specific instruction on how to deal with anxiety and worry in our lives. We're going to break into the context here in verse 4. This is the first way we are to deal with anxiety in our lives. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Rejoicing and being worried are mutually exclusive. Did you know that? You cannot rejoice and be worried at the same time. It's impossible for you to be rejoicing and worried at the same time. So he says, rejoice. Now I know it takes mountain-moving faith, and we'll talk more about this in a later session, to rejoice when things are falling apart around you. We're not talking about being happy, though. He doesn't say here, be happy in all things. And again, I say, be happy. Remember, happiness depends on circumstances. Joy and rejoicing does not. Joy and rejoicing depends on the spirit. You can rejoice no matter what the circumstances are as the Spirit leads you in truth of knowing that all things do, in fact, work together for your good. But he goes on to tell us, Let your moderation, or that's easygoing attitude, be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. And the first thing he calls us to realize is that no matter what we experience, the Lord is at hand. Now, if you put your hand out, and you just do this little exercise, if you put your hand out in front of you and realize the Lord is there, no matter what your circumstances are, the Lord is at hand. He is close to you. He is in the middle of this with you. Whether you can see him directly or not, he's still there. And so for that reason, he goes on to tell us, be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Now, this would be absolutely impossible to do, naturally, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely impossible not to worry about anything and so he goes on, because he knows we're going to be thinking about it, to tell us how not to worry about it. He says in verse 7, or 6, Be careful about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. How do we keep from worrying about everything? To pray about everything. You can't worry and pray at the same time. So the first step in this little formula for worry is to turn your worries into a prayer. As soon as you're concerned about an issue... You're either going to worry about it or you're going to pray about it, one or the other. There's no in-between. You're either going to worry about what's bothering you or you're going to talk to God about it, one or the other. The way you keep from worrying is to talk to God about it. That's what he means by let your request be made known. In all things, let your request be made known unto God. And the promise is this, verse 7, And the peace of God, that's the peace that belongs to God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. The reason it passes all understanding is because your circumstances haven't changed at all. You still are facing the same circumstances. Any of you ever notice this when you you re get really uptight and worried about something and you let your request be made known to God, you tell him about it, and then nothing changes? Your circumstances don't change at all. But remember, that peace that passes all understanding doesn't depend on your circumstances changing. It comes directly from God. So the reason it passes all understanding is because your circumstances haven't changed, but you're at peace. You have a comfort of the Spirit and joy in your heart. The peace that passes all understanding will literally guard your hearts and minds. Finally, brethren, verse 8, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now notice those things he lists out in verse 8. They're all positive things. 
We're going, to, we're going to either think positively or negatively all of our lives. Did you know that? If you want to find fault, you can find fault. If you want to find something wrong, you can find something wrong. If you want to think about everything that's wrong in the world, you can go from now on thinking about everything that's wrong, or you can think about what's lovely, just, of good report, etc. Here what he's saying, to keep that peace that passes all understanding, we're going to have to change our thinking. That's why he says, think on these things. We'll talk about more about that in a later session. Now, finally, look at verse 9. He says, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Now, I want to emphasize this little word, do. It's so important in dealing with anxiety. You see, you cannot worry about anything unless you just sit on your butt and do nothing. The only time you can worry is when you are passive. When you get up and do what God has given you to do, your worry quits. You can't worry and do things at the same time. So this is a three-step process. First of all, let your request be made known unto God. You're going to receive peace. Secondly, think on the things that are positive. You're going to maintain that peace. Thirdly, do what God has led you to do in ministry, and you'll share that peace as well. Thank you very much. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 